Dateline, Ogden Standard Examiner, March 15, 1947. Headline, Pastor Ayers' Racial Hatred Problems. Quote, Both the white and Negro races were charged in fanning the fires of hatred and racial problems by the Reverend J.L. Connors, pastor of the Wall Avenue Baptist Church, in a discussion before Weber County Sociology Class Friday. When a bus driver slaps a colored woman in the South, the Negro papers display the story in large type. The only time a Negro gets on the front page of white paper is when he commits a heinous crime, the pastor charged. Economic conditions are the Negro's greatest problem today, Mr. Connor said. The Negro not only has problems, he is a problem, he said, maintaining that the race problem is worse now than ever. Mr. Connor suggested that the best solution to the problem is for the Negro to place himself in a position to command respect, a viewpoint strongly held by the late Booker T. Washington, end quote. I'm Wendy. This is Demolish Salt Lake and the story of saving the Wall Avenue Baptist Church. Hello and welcome to episode 23. Yes, it's been a couple months since my last episode. There was some chaos to the summer and it took a while for things to calm down enough that I could focus back on the podcast. So thanks for sticking around during my unintended hiatus. Today I have my friend Chris Jensen with me to tell the story of the Wall Avenue Baptist Church, American Legion Pioneer Post 66, and the New Zion Baptist Church. The original Wall Avenue Baptist Church turned American Legion Pioneer Post 66 was located at 2701 Wall Avenue. If you drive past it today, you would probably disregard it as an old dumpy building. But as you will hear, this building was at the center of Ogden's black community its civil rights movement, and desegregation. Our conversation is based on Chris's in-depth research and in-person interviews with congregation members. You'll get to hear some excerpts of those interviews, as well as some really amazing history about Ogden that you probably didn't know. Also, the Weber County Heritage Foundation's architectural tour that we talk about in the episode has already happened. I intended to release this episode prior to the tour. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I. Hello and welcome to uh, a very cool episode. I'm here with my friend Chris. We've been planning this episode for quite a while and um, finally we were able to get it together to, to join up to talk about um, a really cool church in Ogden. Um, and before we begin, though, I want to uh, have Chris introduce himself. Chris, you want to say hi? Hi, I'm Chris Jensen. I am um, a Salt Lake resident and a finishing my master's degree in historic preservation, and that's what turned me on to this church. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about the New Zion Church in Ogden. Yes. All right. Um, let's start off with um, a simple question, maybe. What got you interested in the New Zion Church? How did you head down this path to do this massive amount of research that you have done, which is incredible because we get to talk about that today? Uh, you know, the story of this really starts probably a couple of years ago when I first met Jakari. Um, Jakari Kelly turned me on to this church, and she 
one at one point I was talking to her about historic preservation and we were talking about another issue here downtown with preservation, how that's affecting um, different people, but also sort of ignoring black people. And um, she was like, you know, you really need to look into this church. Um, it's now vacant, um, the Wall Avenue Baptist Church. And then she said her grandfather actually was a, um, Matt, not a master, but a, uh, I'm, tr- I'm forgetting the title for auxiliary, not, not auxiliary, but for American Legion, mm-hmm. um, presidents, I guess. But he was, he was the guy that led the American Legion, um, up in Ogden. And she said it was the only black American Legion. It was Pioneer Post 66. And that, you know, she wanted to see this building preserved and she wanted more data on it. And it was sort of a quick conversation. It wasn't really, you know, let's go deep into this. She was just like sort of plugging it of like, you know, for future reference, you should really think about doing a paper on this. And then she brought it up a couple more times and she found the right person to to listen to her her story. Yeah. And and, um, sorry. Um, She, she was, you know, bringing it up every now and then. And I, and she showed me photos of it. And when I looked at the photos, I was just like, oh, I'm not sure there's much here. Like, because it has been altered at such, like, like so many alterations done. It looks nothing like it originally It almost did. looks like a, a, an old abandoned restaurant. Yes. It actually most recently has been a restaurant. Okay. And that's why. <laughs> um, and, and, but it doesn't, it does, um, after doing a lot of the research on it, it does still retain its historic um, character and structure from the Pioneer Post 66 days. So there is still yet hope for this building. Um, but I was coming up on a um, property documentation assignment for um, a class I was doing in my preservation program. And we, couldn't really find a building here that hadn't been on the National Register that might be of importance. Um, because as you know, doing this podcast, a lot of them have been demolished. Right. Um, so, yeah. And after some talking with my professor, Melanie Little, she, she was like, you know, think of any conversations you've had with people. And I was just like, oh, my God, like, this has pretty much been given to me. Like, <laughs> this is Jik- the whole conversation you've been having with Jakari. <laughs> yeah, like, Jakari gave me this building and was like, you know, you need to think about this for a future paper. And so I pitched it to Melanie, and Melanie um, was like, I love this. I, and it only had a small amount of detail at this point, but she was like, I love this idea. You need to research this. And so leading up to this class, because they wanted you to pick this class, like four weeks, this building four weeks out before the class started. Um, I contacted, you know, Preservation Utah, um, Utah Shippo and a couple other people that I knew and nobody really knew anything about it. Um, nobody had any documentation on it. Wow. And, it, even the city of Ogden, when I talked to them and even we were County Heritage, n- nobody knew anything about it. And so it, it really worried me getting into this project because I didn't know how far I could take it. Sure. Um, but it quickly became um, a story about the community and about community outreach and community engagement. Um, everything I found in this story, or at least the big piece stuff, the civil rights movement, the advocacy work, the work around what they did with 
desegregating um, events with the Pioneer Post 66. It was all done through community outreach and through finding people that lived through it and that did it. And to me, it's a wonderful story about where preservation gets it right. And, you know, it's, it's about like reaching out into these communities and not only engaging them, but doing projects where you're able to let them speak in first person and they're telling their story for you. And it's just been a wonderful experience. So that's how I came upon this, was just a couple small conversations around, um, you know, you really need to think about this building and then not being able to find anything for an assignment and then we landed on it. That's incredible. Yeah. I I find I I run into that sometimes with a building. I'll just... um, for some reason, I'll come across a picture of a building. I'll think, oh, there's not much there, mm-hmm. you know. And after digging, you realize it's this huge, broader story about the history. And it's actually a really important building. Yeah. And, and I think that really plays into this one. Like, you know, we said it looks like an old abandoned restaurant, but it is actually very significant to um, the black community of Ogden and to, um, you're right, redlining and segregation and um, civil rights movement. Yeah. So the way this class was structured, and it's really interesting how um, Melanie had it structured, you know, she wanted you to do it in phases. She wanted you to document the exterior of the building and do like descriptions of like the elevations of the building and the facade. Sure. And then, but she didn't want you to dig into any of its history or community until later into it. And she actually asked me, you know, don't go back and ask Jakari anything yet. Let's get, you know, this first part of the assignment is just the exterior of the building. And um, finding out also like who owns the property and um, and the architectural style of it. And so when I first actually went and saw the building in person, drove up there to get photos of it so I could document the exterior of it, when I pulled up, I was just like, my God, what did I get myself into? This, this, there's nothing here. I remember you sent me pictures of that day and you're like, this is what it looks like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was, you know, you, you get those inner voices where you're just like, I... I'm not sure. This is going to fail miserably. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was just like, oh, this this building isn't giving me much. And, you know, the exterior didn't. Um, but, again, it, it was the community and the history of it. And we'll talk about this later. But, you know, without uh, – to me, the story exemplifies um, if people aren't in a building and if that community is no longer there, it's just a building. Right. 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 Yeah, and we have a really cool quote about that that we'll we'll play a little bit later. But yeah, absolutely. So let's start off with um, let's start with the history. So this church began in the forties or fifties. Well, there's three phases to this congregation. Okay. Um, so the first phase, um, from what I could find, the congregation started in 1912, and they met at a person's house oh, and. Wow. They had services in Ogden out their backyard, I believe. Around 1915 is when I could find newspaper articles that 2701 Wall Avenue was actually built. Okay. It was permitted in 1915. It opened in 1916. And this was their first permanent building. structure yes. for their church. Yeah, and that's the, the front half of this current building on Wall Avenue. And then that was their church building. It only sat about 100 people in this building, that's all I could fit. 
Um, it was a single hall building, I believe. And so it was a brick structure, had a steeple on the northeast corner of it. Um, and they used this building until 1956. Okay. Um, and then in 1955, they started building New Zion Baptist Church. So my documentation project was actually on 2701 Wall Avenue, which was the original church. And then in 1958, I believe, is when Pioneer Post 66 took over that building until the early 2000s. And who is Pioneer Post 66? So Pioneer Post 66 is, um, it's an American Legion post, and it's the only black American Legion post in Utah. Um, I was able to confirm that not only through oral records, but also through the American Legion itself. Um, and so members from this congregation, once they moved to New Zion, so from 1956 on, um, on Lincoln Avenue, um, New Zion Church exists. It's still, they're still there and they still have a wonderful congregation and the building's still there. Um, so after 1950. Eight, the congregation from New Zion, um, members of it, particularly Herman Jones and Hazel Jones, um, Willard Kelly and Kareen Kelly, bought it and made it into Pioneer Post 66. And it, Pioneer Post 66 was a American Legion post that was founded by World War II veterans. Herman Jones was a World War II veteran. Oh, yeah. And um, so it quickly became not only a hub for the black community there or black veteran community, but it became a hub for the black community in general because they held so many events out of it. Um, in the recordings that you sent me, so um, listening to, it was uh, Diane. Yeah, Diane Kelly. Diane Kelly, and that's Willard Kelly's daughter. Yes. Um, her talking about her father starting uh, the American Legion as a black as a place for black soldiers to go. Um, and how that was a really a jumping off point for the important importance for the black community. And um, there was some also some involvement with the NAACP there, wasn't there? Yes. Yeah. So the Pioneer Post 66 has a, a very long history um, because it, it went for so long. And I only documented during, um, you know, like, stuff that was older than 50 years for for historical context. Um, Yes, they, well, how far back do you want me to talk? Because I can talk and talk and talk about this. I think like, let's, let's give, let's give the listeners a really like um, a good understanding of the importance of this post and what it did. And then we can move into talking about, you know, well, the members and, you know, some of the people we interviewed and yeah. and what they did to help desegre- desegregate often. Because, um, like I was, was telling you earlier, I was, I'm always surprised at how surprised I am of learning mm-hmm. about my history. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, learning that Ogden was segregated, um, that shouldn't be a surprise, but it was. And, you know, again, it's a history that we don't talk about much and that we don't. Um, you don't learn in, yeah. you know, in school, you know, yeah. you learn about the broader idea of segregation. Right. But like for me growing up and learning about segregation, I always thought, you know, about the South because it was, because yes. yeah. it was, it was always integrated with learning about, you know, Martin Luther King and, you know, in that movement. 
I never, for some reason, you know, growing up, I never applied it to here in mm-hmm. Utah. And I think, you know, that's just a, that's a problem with our education system. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I guess to, to back up on this a little bit, and I should have talked about this earlier, is that, you know, this church, um, Wall Avenue, and even New Zion, are both in areas that were redlined in Ogden, Utah. And I was able to find a couple um, redline maps. Um, can you tell for maybe some people that maybe don't understand what redline is, can you? Uh... Yeah, so there's actually two things going on here. It was redlining and also racial covenants in deeds, so deed restrictions. Okay. So redlining um, in Ogden, so what redlining does is it was officially, and I'm quoting when I say this, um, it was officially used by banks to basically like exclude people from lending practices. So if you were in an area that was redlined by a bank, you couldn't get a home loan traditionally. Um, and they even had comments on these redlined areas about who lived there and why. And Ogden, um, in this area that um, Wall Avenue and New Zion was in, when you look at the descriptions of the redlining, it talks about being the neighborhoods having lower class working people in them, and they were mainly black and Hispanic people. And so it was purposely done to basically say, not, not basically say, but to give them reason and justification not to loan to these communities. And then along these areas, then in Hazel's interview, she talks about 27th Street. You know, you couldn't go, um, I think, north of it because you were out of your designated You're area. Out of your area. Even, so even though, like, the city government didn't have that I could find actual records of um, desegregation or or where black people were allowed to go, it was still happening in Ogden. Mm-hmm. And Hazel Jones's interview and even people at the church, their interviews confirm this, um, that, you know, they couldn't go out of these certain areas. Right. And the other part of this, too, is the racial covenants and the deed restrictions. Um, Hazel Jones couldn't move into her current neighborhood that she lives in until 1965 because of racial covenants. Wow. That was happening in Ogden and even in Salt Lake. There's a long history of this. Right. And so they, the only area they could live in were where these churches were and the surrounding areas. And that was it. I can't remember the, the complete outline of it. Mm-hmm. But um, if they went out of those areas, they'd be questioning as to why they were there. Right. Let's play Hazel's interview about that. Yeah, between 25th and um, Wall, on the north side of the street, blacks did not walk. They had to walk on the south side because that's where all the black businesses were at that time. And (laughs) if you were over there, you know, if you walked on that street, then you might get questioned, what are you doing here? What are you looking for, you know? Those kinds of things. And, you know, there are always some people that are going to be unkind about things. It's really um, heartbreaking to hear that, you know, they only belonged in one part of town. Yeah, it is. But, you know, when you talk to Hazel about this, there, you know, she'll, and I, I think you have a, there's a couple of quotes where she says, you know, there were good times and there were bad times. Right. She loved the community aspect of this community. Um, and she talks a lot about how, because of what this community was going against and how they were 
segregated and how they were basically put into this corner of Ogden, that they actually became stronger and they became more united. And they used that strength to push boundaries and to push forward with civil rights. And it really became a tale of what a community can do when they band together. And Hazel, I I think, um, still to this day, she pulls from that strength because when you talk to her about it and stuff that she's involved in, she um, has never stopped pushing. Right. Um, And so it is a sad story and it's something that should have never happened. But to me also, it's a story of um, community strength, resilience, but also love, Mm -hmm. the deep love they have for um, these churches and organizations that they were involved in. Right. And one thing that really stood out to me in the interviews were that this church was home. Yes. Um, When there was nowhere else to go, they could go to this church. Yeah. And, you know, that that that's just so, so important when you're looking at places like this, because it it is their home. It's where, you know, somebody, I think it was Deacon Thomas, when we were talking to him, you know, he said, this is the first marriage that happened here. This is the, and he he knew the people. Um, This is the first baby that was baptized here. And he knew who the baby was. Um, And he goes on to say that this is, um, that there's been so many birthday parties that have happened here. There's been so many events that have happened here. There's even been sad times where there's been funerals that have happened here. You know, this is a place where people have come to get baptized as a kid. And it's also been a place where people depart this earthly world. And um, it, it basically has provided this community from cradle to grave. And that to me is just an important aspect of this story because it's not only just a building to them, it's a place for community and it's a place that has provided them with the strength to go forward and to face all these issues that they've had to face in Ogden. Right, right. So let's talk about um, how they went about pushing boundaries and and to use a quote, getting into good trouble. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, and, and as, you know, this this post was there, their home base for this. Mm -hmm. This is where they would have their meetings and this is where they would talk about, you know, what to do next. And so um, tell us some stories about some of the things that came, that this community did to make Ogden a better place. Do you want me to talk about Hazel's story? Yes, because Hazel's story is, so Hazel, um, she had been a member of the church for, Hazel moved to Ogden in 1950. 1950. And Hazel is currently in her 90s. And she, and she is smart as a whip. Yes. And she is what I term as a spitfire. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have loved to have known Hazel in her younger years because I'm sure it would have been an adventure. Um, when you talk to people about her, they basically tell you it was an adventure. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, so Hazel moved to Ogden in 1950 from California. And when she first got here, I believe it was during the winter, and she tells the story about stepping off the train. And she didn't know what to do because she had never seen so much snow. And she had to walk to her apartment. Um, 
So she was a member of Wall Avenue Baptist Church from 1950 until when it moved in 1956 and then became a member of New Zion when at, at the New Congregation. And she's been there ever since. So Hazel has seen it all. She's been there, yeah? Yes. And Hazel, um, her husband was one of the founding members of Pioneer Post 66. And Hazel was an auxiliary president for it. In fact, she was the first black auxiliary president in Utah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and she actually has a really cool poster board where it talks about this and, it, and the history about her involvement in the civil rights movement, especially in Ogden. Um, but, you know, Hazel being involved in the auxiliary and involved in Pioneer Post 66, she, at one point, um, I can't remember the year she said this was in, it was probably the early 1960s, they were having... The American Legion here was having events at segregated hotels and galas and all these other things. So Pioneer, members of Pioneer Post 66 could never go to these events. That Even the, though they were in, they were the same yes. organization. Yeah, they were the same organization. And they couldn't go to any of these events because they kept having them at segregated hotels or segregated venues. And so one day, Hazel just says enough's enough. And her reasoning behind it was we are card-carrying members. We're paying our fees. We are a part of this community. We should be allowed to go to these events. And so Hazel grabs Corrine Kelly, who was her best friend at the time, and says, Corrine, we're going to this event that's happening at this hotel. And I don't care what happens. They can carry us off to prison if they have to, but we're going to go. And so Hazel and Kareen, she gets, she eventually gets Kareen to agree to go with her. And I think Kareen was a bit apprehensive because, I, I you know, I think Kareen was a major player in this. But in reality, you know, Hazel was probably really the one pushing right. it. And so she gets Kareen Kelly to go with her. And they she tells this wonderful story to me off the recording about, you know, they walk up to this um, receptionist and they ask, where is this speech happening uh, or assembly? And the receptionist sort of looks at them weird and is like, oh, my God, what do I do? What do I do? I don't you, know what to do. Yeah. And Hazel's like, oh, just so you know, I'm with the American Legion. I'm an auxiliary president. We're here. You know, I want to go to this event. And she sort of sheepishly points her over to the elevator and tells her, well, go to the elevator. It's on this floor. And so Kareen and um, Hazel walk over to the elevator and get in. And she says the moment they walk into the elevator, she, they see this receptionist pick up the phone like she's calling someone. And they're just like, oh, here it is. Yeah, we here have, it is. Here. We have gotten in some trouble. Um, and so they end up walking into this um, event. And there's like there's people speaking and, you know, like how it's like auditorium seating, basically. Um, and so they purposely, Hazel makes a decision to purposely sit up front. And it's just such a smart move because what she's doing is she's purposely sitting up front. So if anything happens, if they try to remove her and Kareem, they have to do it in front of everyone. Right. And they also do it so everybody knows they're there. Right. And so they go in and they sit down. And she says every time that door swings open and somebody goes in and out of it, they're like ducking. <laughs> and they're like, here it is. We've had it. Like, we're going to be kicked out and we're going to be dragged into jail. Um, and, you know, it never happens. They don't get arrested. Nobody ever confronts them. And they're able to sit through this. And actually, for the first time, 
be a part of a fully of a full American Legion event Amazing. with the other American Legions. Amazing. Yeah, and it, all it really took was two people to say enough's enough, and they go to this event. And they have a wonderful time. And people talk to them after. They do get a couple people that give them side eye. Oh, I'm sure. You know, probably wondering what's going on. Um, And they end up having a wonderful time. And several people ask them questions of like, oh, you know, what Legion post are you here with? Why have we never heard about this Legion post? And um, a lot of the American Legion people there didn't even know they existed. And just by showing up, they were able to show that not only they existed, but they deserve to be a part of it. Right. So later that night... That's a serious, ballsy move. Yes. And I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a wonderful story to me of women taking the lead and saying enough's enough. Because Willard and um, Herman Kelly... Uh, so sorry, Herman Jones and Willard Kelly are both Ameri- are Pioneer Post 66 leaders in their male. They're Kareen and um, Hazel's husbands. Sure. You know, they are heavily involved in the community and they are having civil rights stuff happen at the Pioneer Post 66 and even church are using it as like sort of a strategy center. And they're doing this stuff um, behind the scenes and they're strategizing and, and bringing in speakers to speak on civil rights and um, the advancement of black people. But it really took women in this instance to say enough's enough. We're going to go into like the belly of the beast essentially. Right. And we're going to be there and, and show a presence. And then so later that night, they, they pull their husbands together and Hazel basically tells Herman, your tuxedo's laid out on the couch, on the bed. We're going to this gala tonight. And Herman initially pushes back and tells Hazel, no, like, we're, we can't go to that. Yeah, this. we can't go to that. Yeah, you know, it's at a, seg- it's at a segregated venue and, you know, um, black folk aren't invited to this. And Hazel basically tells him, I'm going, you're going, Karina is getting willard and we're all going. If they have to carry us off to jail, they can do it. And she said, trust me, just go. And he says no several times, and finally she convinces him to go. They get to this event, and Hazel said off, off recording, when they opened the doors and they walked through, people just stared at them. And, and like one of those moments where everything goes quiet. Yes, like right? I, I imagine you could hear a pin drop right? on the floor. Yes, <laughs> that's what I'm imagining right now. The doors open and everything just goes silent. Yes. <laughs> And if I remember correctly, Hazel said she was the first, first one to walk through that threshold. Wow. Because she was like, I'm doing it. Yes. Um, and she said they were actually welcomed with open arms. That's that amazing. People came up to them and wanted to know where they were from and wanted to talk to their husbands and wanted to see why they didn't know their story or who they were. And that it ended up being a wonderful night for them. And the president of the Utah American Legion actually came up to her and Herman and asked them a question, you know, basically asked them, like, why haven't we seen you here before? I knew nothing about your post, and he's the president. Right. And she, Hazel, I guess, sort of smarted off to them and told them in their own way, in her own way, like, you guys know exactly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're having these events at segregated hotels. It's like, you know why you haven't seen us. And it sort of took them back, I think. Um, and she says they, shortly after this, they called her and Herman up. 
I said, we would love to talk to you. We, we want you to come and meet us. And this started the conversation on the American Legion no longer having events at segregated hotels and venues. And Hazel and Herman started pushing them to stop having and stop supporting um, segregated events. And so the American, so they desegregated the American Legion. Holy cow. In Utah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful story. And I think it shows what actually showing up will do for you. Yes. We talk a lot about that, right? Yeah. Like, like what, what it takes to actually make change happen. Yeah. And, and it takes putting yourself in a scary, vulnerable situation sometimes, but knowing that you're ready to accept the consequences because you want change. Yeah. You know, I think for Hazel, enough was enough. Yeah. You know, she, at this point, I believe, was either getting ready to become an auxiliary president or already was. And she was heavily involved in the community for years, had been in Utah for well over 10 years at this point and had been working on civil rights and was just like, here's the next phase. Like we are a part of this organization. And if we are going to pay our membership dues and fees and going to contribute to this organization, they need to contribute to us too. Right. Because of what she did, were there other um, black posts that all of a sudden became recognized in, in other states? Or, or were there all of a sudden people like, hey, we can make a post of our own now? I think you know, what Hazel told me was that, and, and I probably need to talk to her more about this because that's a good question. She did tell me during one of our off-recording interviews was that... Um, this allowed her to start attending like her and or the Pioneer Post to start attending like nationwide events, um, statewide and nationwide. And that she was able to get other women and other black posts more engaged because of it. Uh-huh. I did not ask her more about what they did right. because, you know, these interviews, Hazel's, Hazel's at an advanced age and there's only so long she can talk. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, but she did have an effect. She did get other women involved and they did continue to push um, from my knowledge. Um, how deep that went, I'm unsure. But I would imagine if you sat down and asked her more about this, it, it reverberated further than Utah. Probably had more of a national impact, I would imagine. And again, it's a story that we would not know unless you had dug into this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this... This whole documentation process just has revealed so much and has been um, has just been so great to learn more about this community and about strong women like Hazel and Kareen. You know, uh, Kareen Kelly, um, when you listen to the interviews with Jakari and Diane, was also a very strong woman that really um, pushed her and her community and was constantly there for the community. And I think, you know, that is a wonderful tale that came out of this, is how strong the women were. They, even though they technically were in the background at times, they weren't really background players. No. Not at all. They, they were really, when the time came, they were the ones pushing boundaries. They were at the forefront. Right. And that, to me, is just something special that came out of this. So, um, aside from desegregating an entire organization, which is mind-blowing and amazing. Um, 
What did, how did they affect the community of Ogden? Oh, there's so I many. know that's a broad, broad question. Yes. You know, that's a, that's a problem we ran into with these interviews because when you would ask that question, they would have to sort through their memories because there's just so many things. There's so did. many things that happen. And I, I've heard that in, in the recorded interviews, like, you know, you would ask them like, what's, what is, um, what does the Pioneer Post mean to you? Or what does the church mean to you? And they would just say everything. Yeah. That was a lot of the responses. It means everything to me. Yeah. You know, in one of the interviews with Hazel, um, I asked her, you know, what else did you do for the civil rights movement? And she laughs in this interview. And she says, besides March. And she was trying to, with that statement, and this is a thing that I find important when dealing with communities and with interviewing people, is you have to look for what they're really telling you. And in that statement, what she was telling me was there's so much more. You know, we what didn't we do? Right. And she actually goes on in that interview to talk about how they would march and how they would invite in guest speakers and um, how um, she, as auxiliary president, pushed for Agent Orange treatment of people coming back from Vietnam and fair pay in the military and fair benefits and desegregating the military because the military was segregated. And that, you know, these were all important issues to her. And further on down the line, they eventually started working on housing and removing racial covenants and getting out of red line areas. Um, you know, Hazel worked on this until the day she left that neighborhood uh, and even further on. She, there's this really good story where she says, you know, they move into their new neighborhood in 1965. It's when she's able to. And this is a neighborhood outside of where she was living in yes. a place where she would not have been allowed to live up until this point. Yes. And she says, you know, she actually got really lucky in the neighborhood she moved into because when she moved into this neighborhood, um, she said all the neighbors stood out in their front yards and just watched them move in, almost like a circus had moved in. And she said, you know, she actually felt lucky that's all that happened to her. That they, and, I, and to me, that was just such an interesting quote that she thought that she was the lucky one. And she ended up becoming friends with her neighbors. Mm -hmm. And she did say, you know, it was, a, it was insulting that they were out there watching them move in and that it was a little intimidating. But, you know, through kindness and love, she was able to win them over. And then she goes on to tell a story about how her other friends had moved into um, segregated neighborhoods that were now desegregated. And they were actually protested in Ogden that people would put out lawn signs saying, keep black people out. And that she felt lucky that she didn't have to deal with that. Her neighbor didn't, her neighborhood didn't do that to her. And that to me is another sad layer of the story, right. right? Is that, you know, when they were able to actually get into segregated neighborhoods, that there were still barriers there. There was still this hate. There was still... Everything just didn't fix itself yeah. immediately. And, and, you know, they had to... You know, Hazel has spent a lifetime working through this. Right. And, you know, befriending her neighbors, being a community leader in her neighborhood. And other people had it much harder where they moved into neighborhoods that um, weren't as accepting as hers, e even though, you know, she still had stuff to work on. They had a lot bigger obstacles to overcome in these neighborhoods. And, you know, she 
in a way became sort of like a mother for them all to um, show them like a way forward and oh, wow. to and to help them. Um, she set the example. Yeah, yeah. And so there's just, there's so many things that they did. I want to play this quote, and I think it, it really is a good quote on what the church meant for everybody. And this is a quote from Mary Swain. And she had been a member uh, for like 76 years. Mm-hmm. And let's play her quote. It's our life. Mm-hmm. It, it means everything to us. It's the place you go when you're happy and you come when you're sad. It's a link to the community, especially for black people. When we couldn't go any place else, mm-hmm. we went to church. Mm-hmm. When we were not accepted, we were not accepted in lots of places. When I came here, I couldn't even go to a restaurant because I was black. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I still am. <laughs> but uh, I could come to church. So when, and I didn't have a car, but I would walk because Sundays were special. There was nothing more important than coming to church. And at that time, it was Wall Avenue Baptist Church. But I still came, my family came. This was our home, the church. I think what what she's saying is that, that this, and it, and it echoes what we hear from a lot of the other recordings you recorded of, of the members that this was their home. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, there wasn't a lot of places they could go and a lot of things they could do. And so this is where they went. And this was their, there was no difference between them and, and the church. It was, it was all together. Yeah, yeah, the church became them and they became the church. Exactly. And, um, you see this repeated in these interviews and even in documentation is that this was a place for them to be a community and to gather and to have that love and acceptance. Chikari, um, in one of the earlier interviews, has a, a wonderful quote about it was that the churches and the Pioneer Post 66 were a place where they could be unapologetically black, where when you walked through that door, you were you. It, you were no longer just a black person on the street. Or you were no longer um, an outsider when you went outside the boundaries of um, where black people could go during this time. And Diane Kelly talked about this too, that when you stepped into these places, it didn't matter if this one person you didn't like and this person was quote unquote a bitch, as um, they put it in this one in, in this quote, you were all together as a community and it, and those differences dissolved when you were in these places right? because of, of how you were able to let your guard down. You were able to just be people. Be you. And that's something that I th- don't think a lot of people outside of communities like this understand, that when they were in the public um, or outside of these safe havens, the amount of pressure that was placed on them to adhere to... Um, societal norms and all the rules they had to follow yes. and but not only that but I mean the racism that they were subjected mm-hmm. to and I I can imagine in everyday life how exhausting that would be to make sure that you're always behaving accordingly to what society wants, wanted you to be yeah yeah you know I think Hazel um 
at one point actually said it was like just being able to let your hair down, let your guard down, and you could be fully you. You could you could bring your whole self to the table, and you could have that love and that support around you. Right. And um, to me, that's just such an important part of why this place is so important. Because it wasn't just a place of worship. Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of it. And we, you hear that a lot when they say, you know, we're in the, we're in the business of, you know, saving souls. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're in the business of, um, of sharing Christ's words and, you know, and, and bringing people together in salvation and, and, you know, that's a part of it, but you also have that part that is, this is a safe haven. Mm-hmm. This is where we're, our family is. And family wasn't just, you know, your family. Family meant everybody in the community. That was family. Yes. And that's, you know, the community building aspect of this um, church and of the Pioneer Post 66 is, is can't be overlooked right. in, in this story. Because they, they, they were basically, before they had a community center, it was the community center. Right. And they... Um, you know, there's so many stories, and I'll probably forget half of. I probably have already forgotten half of them. But, but, um, you know, they they told stories about how um, they would always have events there at the church or at the Pioneer Post 66. They would do Easter there. They would do Christmas there. They would have a Black Santa there because <laughs> they wanted to see themselves represented. It's important. Yes, and. Um, they would even have like just family picnics and celebrations and just have these events where they would um, just gather and just to be a community and to do it in a place where they could be their full selves. Um, You know, one of the stories that I found interesting about Pioneer Post 66 and the church also is that they would have events for the kids to give them access to things that the older members never had access to, um, especially growing up. And so Herman um, and um, Willard were both avid golfers. And so they were, and they loved the outdoors apparently. And so they would always bring all the kids together and they would do events outdoors. And, you know, Willard would take them golfing. And I guess for two years in a row, they wanted to give them access to skiing because it was something that the black folk of, of Ogden didn't really have access to, yeah. was to skiing. And they were constantly pu- sort of punching above their weight with stuff like this, right? They were trying to provide access. Right. And um, when I was asking, you know, Jakari said, Jakari or Diane, I can't remember who it was, um, said it, you know, they had only done it for two years of skiing. And I, I was like, I, I, I asked, why only two years? Why, yeah, why just two years? You know, that seems weird. Um, and Jakari just laughs and says, honey, because black people don't ski. <laughs> and it's a, it's a funny part of the interview, right? I mean, and, you know, we're all laughing when she says this because she's so animated when she says it. But stop and think about what that really means. Right. You know, it, she's playing up on a stereotype and she's Uh trying to, you know, she's trying to make the interview sort of humorous and funny, but really what she's telling you and what she's conveying to you without saying it is that it was something that they just don't normally do. Right. And that this 
Post was trying to give them access to that. They were trying to advance their community through activities like this and to show them that it's okay to go do stuff out of the norm that we don't normally do. And that to me is just so amazing that they were that, that these older, this older generation, which is that forward thinking, Mm -hmm. they were constantly trying to push that needle forward. They're trying to advance that community. Pushing their younger generation forward so that they would make change as well, right? Yeah, and it happened in little ways it, and, and big ways, yeah. um, as we've learned through Hazel. But yeah, it, it just it's a wonderful story around what vision and what driving forward will do for a community. And um, I think they did wonderful with it. And when you talk to people that were younger when this was going on, um, Diane being the perfect example, Jihari mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. you know, she talks about how they shielded them from the bad stuff mm-hmm. and they made them look forward to the good stuff. Oh. That this was, we were going to help our kids move past what we had to deal with and we were going to give them access to other stuff and hopefully they would never have to know the heartbreak of what it was to be black in America during this time frame. The post existed up until the 2000s? Yes. So what was the, the factors that happened that brought this era to, to an end? Well, it was founded by World War II veterans, and um, a lot of the founding members are gone. In right. fact, I think almost all of them are now. There might be one or two. Well, um, and, and as we know, their children are, you know, in their 80s, 70s, yeah. and 80s, and mm-hmm. 90s. So. Yes. Um, I think what it, you know, just with changing times in Ogden and with membership declining, um, and also, um, they basically caused it themselves in a way, if you really think about it, because what, because when Hazel and them stepped forward and helped the desegregation of the American legions, um, especially in this area, new me- Black members didn't have to just join the post 66. They could join other posts. Right. And so they caused this change to where they really sort of, um, without knowing it, eventually made it to where this post no longer was growing. Yeah. And um, I don't think, you know, that's not what they wanted, obviously, because they wanted this post to remain strong. But they caused this change to where now younger black members of the military can be in other posts. Um, so it, it eventually closed because of dwindling numbers of participants okay. and other posts started growing. And um, when you look at this building, this building is a very small building. Yes. It's only like a thousand square feet. So it can only hold so many members anyways. Um, and so I think that's that's part of the reason. They, they had um, other... If you look at like the 80s and 90s and you look at newspaper articles on this post, um, this is a whole different story that's out of the historic context of that 50 year mark, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, they had gambling there. They had, you know, it became a place where, um, you know, they were doing some stuff that they probably shouldn't have been doing in the later years or allowing it to happen. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that's a whole nother story around when you have communities that you push aside they start having to do stuff in those 
want safe places or they sure. start allowing it. Um, and it just becomes a, a, a whole nother tale of how, um, even though desegregation did happen in Ogden at that point, there were still racial prejudices. Mm-hmm. There were still people, they were still sort of pushed to the side or they were. And so they, it becomes more of a tale of what happens to people when you continually push them down and the American experience continually weighs on them. And, um, you know, it it becomes more of an issue around systematic racism and how that affects a community. Yeah. 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 So it closed in the 2000s. Yeah, I believe, you know, I couldn't find a date. And even when I was talking to the historians, I, I, um, they couldn't think of a date or find records on it. I think it was around 2001 to 2003 is the dates I got when it officially closed. And I'm assuming the, then the building was was sold. Yes. And, and now it is what it is now. It's yeah. gone through quite a few changes over the years. Yes, it was, I believe, a daycare at one point, and then it eventually became a restaurant. Now it's just sitting there empty. You, um, you interviewed the deacon mm-hmm. of the New Zion Church. And he, he said something that just really hit home to me. And I think it talks a lot about what happens to buildings and, and preservation in our community. And um, let's, let's play his quote. This is um, Deacon White. The young people that are coming up today is going to carry on the legacy that New Zion established many, many years ago from walking from Wall Avenue to building this church. That when they, in 30 years from now, I won't be here, but 30 years from now, hopefully the the same uh, enthusiasm, the caring, the loving attitude will not diminish. That's what I'm hoping for. Because I, I started here in 96 because I'm originally from Virginia, retired here in the Air Force. My name is Thomas Deacon Thomas White, so I mean. So, and I, and I got here in 96, and that's when I joined New Zion, and uh, I've been here ever since, and I love it. That's where I met my wife and everything. And so it has, it's, it's, it's what I'm watching as the young people come today, uh-huh. there's something they can carry on from what they're seeing now. Because, you know, as, as, as we disappear, if there's no young people to carry it on, what happens to it? Yeah. The building will still be here. It'll be called, the church will be called New Zion, but if you don't have people here, it's just a building. So, you know, we talk a lot about buildings tell stories. Mm-hmm. And when we lose the building, we lose the story. And I just think what he said here just nails that home. Yes. Yeah. Y- y- when you lose a building, um, you lose part of the community with it, right? right? Um, but also in his quote, he brings up something that I find so interesting where he talks about it without the community and without people in it, it's just a building. It's just a building. And you see that with structures all around Salt Lake, Ogden, all around the world, really. Absolutely. Um, and it, to me, it, it nails home the thing that we should be talking about more in preservation which is if we're not saving these buildings to have people in them and to have them used and or to bring historic people back to historic places, what are we really doing it for? Right. We're really just creating monuments to a bygone era. Right. 
Um, and sometimes, and preservation is guilty of this, and you see it with um, a lot of buildings in like the avenues or um, even in downtown or on the East Coast, where preservation has done a wonderful job of saving these large ornate buildings right. for their architectural integrity um, or their architectural excellence, I guess, is how you would put it. Um, but they're all really buildings that were owned by rich white people. Mm-hmm. And we've ignored these smaller buildings that have these rich histories right. where these people have went, uh, have dealt with adversity, who have built communities, who have created friendships that last lifetimes because of the love that they have for each other. We've ignored them in the past. And I think this is part of that story where we need to start talking more about these places like this that actually helped save a community and that helped bring them together and that pushed them beyond what they had access to. Right, right. You think about, you know, if you're in Ogden, you think of how many times you've driven past this building mm-hmm. and just thought, oh, what a dump. Yeah. You would never know its history just by looking at it. Right. You would you would never know the relationships that were built there, the friendships that were built there, the, the community. The love that was felt there. Yeah. And, and the movement. Yeah. You know, it really is um, a tale of a love of place. Um, right. And... When you're talking about love of place, you also have to acknowledge the loss of place. Right. This place is sort of now lost to them. Mm-hmm. They still have New Zion, right. um, and that has replaced a lot of it. But it really is a love of place, and that's one of the reasons why Hazel was so willing to do these interviews was because she wanted to see this place's history documented and highlighted, and she's hoping to eventually get it saved. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's... Um, you know, it's a story. I, I talk about buildings we've lost. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what this whole podcast is about, right? I think it's it's a good story to tell about the beginnings of how you go about saving a building. Yes. It takes a lot of work, but to help save a building, you, you need to tell its history. Yeah. Because otherwise, like you said, we're just saving a place to save a place. Yeah, you're, you're basically sa- saving a shell of its former right. self um, if you're not telling the story of its history. Right. And um, when it comes to the documentation of this place, um, as you saw, I did like a 50-page report on it. Oh, Chris has books and books and books. <laughs> yes. And then also did interpretation projects on it where I allowed the, uh, the community to tell their stories in first person. Um, I've probably spent well over 100 hours documenting this place and its history and this is the kind of work I want to do, yeah. that I want to be involved in. I don't want to talk about buildings as they're getting ready to be demolished. Right. I don't want to be reactive. All of a sudden, you know, and, and that's unfortunately kind of the situation we've been in a lot in yeah. the past couple of years with how many really important historic buildings that we've lost that, you know, when we hear something's being demolished, you know, the, um, me and, you know, a few other people, we scramble to all yeah. of a sudden tell you the history of it and what we're, what we're losing. Yeah. You know, I think there's something to be said about, I think, historic preservation and even um, nonprofits and historic preservation need to probably think about how they can be more proactive. Right. 
you know, how do you bring in funders to maybe hire a couple more researchers to go out and find these places and document them Mm -hmm. and to engage the communities? Um, I think that's probably where we need to move as a profession or as a community ourselves is to start finding these places while they're still here, why the historic people are still alive and around and interview them, talk to them, document it, and work towards giving them the resources to save them. Right. Um, when I was done with this project, and when I thought I was done, I'm still not <laughs> yeah, done you're with not it. Done. <laughs> yeah, because there's still so many more things we're going to do with it. Um, when when I thought I had wrapped up this project, I printed off um, all of my report and all of the documentation I was able to find on all the newspaper articles, 120 newspaper articles, and I handed it over to. Um, Hazel, Jakari, and Diane. I, I gave them three different binders with it. Mm-hmm. There's one actually sitting here where Hazel has decorated it and like yes, added. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> yes. and she added more to it that I didn't have. And um, I, I was like, you know, here you go. And what we'll do with this eventually is we'll put it into an actual nomination form and we'll submit it to the state. I, there's a couple more things I want to do before we do that, though. Because to me, when you're telling these stories about these places, you not only have to be able to like tell them, but I think you also have to get a little bit of recognition. Right. So I'm, I'm working on getting some recognition. I won't talk about now if I want it to be a bit of a surprise, uh-huh. but I've reached out to a few people that I think might be able to help us actually get um, some official recognition before we submit it. Because so I think to me, an important part of this is getting that recognition and having it out there in the community right. and then submitting it for nomination. Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of, you know, people ask all the time, like, how can we save something? You know, how can we go about saving it? And I think this shows people that it's a lot of work. Yeah, it, it, it is a lot of work, but I think you have to be in love with the process Absolutely. and in love with the people that you meet. Yes. Um you know, when I first started talking to the people in the community, they honestly, I could tell they were apprehensive because I was an outsider. Right. And um, luckily I had Jakari there to help me um, make those inroads. And after a couple of times of talking to them, that trust started to build and they saw that I was doing it to actually help them. Yeah. And that I wasn't doing it. Um, there was nothing malicious or there was no all, uh, different ulterior motives that I was just actually there because I wanted to help right. um, save this place. And if, if we can't save it, at least now we have all this documentation. Which is fantastic because now we can we can tell the story. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and as, you know, unfortunately, as we lose the people that were so heavily involved we have their story and yeah. we can we can continue to tell it yeah and we only have a small part of it right like a flash in the pan I, I can't even imagine if we were able to you know go back in time and oh yeah even just 10 years ago right um the amount of people you'd be able to interview right you know, and that's what this tour we're going to do with um, Weber County Heritage Foundation. On yes, 10. tell us about this tour because this is um, really cool. Yeah, so on September 10th from 10 to 4 o'clock, the Weber County Architectural Heritage Tour is happening in um, Ogden. 
And this is one of the churches that's being highlighted. And we're telling the story of this church through this tour because the New Zion Church is sort of a vernacular type church building. It's, you know, three pews wide, it's square or rectangular. Um, and it has minimal ornamentation on it. It's not one of these big, high, um, high style cathedrals yeah. that you get. It is a very humble church. It has a baptismal pool, an actual baptismal pool um, in the back. It has a traditional um, balcony um, for the choir for the choir and stuff like that. And um, you know, it's just very much a a, a bare bones basic structure itself. The it's I think the building itself consists of fifty thousand bricks that was donated by the community wow. during when they built it in 1955-1956. And most people would drive by this church and they would just think, oh, it's a square church. Mm-hmm. But the story of it is just so much more important than the sum of its parts. Right. Right. Um, right. And So with this tour, what we're going to do is tell the story of the congregation from Wall Avenue all the way to New Zion. And we're going to have um, a a storyboard set up where you can see a quick outline of each story. And um, we'll also have my um, interpretation projects playing um, where people can sit down for a couple minutes and learn and hear Hazel tell her story and Jakari and Diane and the deacon and a couple of other church members tell their story. And we'll have photographs um, in the slideshow along with a show um, playing where you can actually see them when they were younger, when they were active, and what this congregation actually looked like at that time. This is going to be incredible. Yeah, I, th- I really hope we'll be able to tell a small part of their story for them and highlight it to the community so people coming through will be able to learn more about this place. And I hope, you know, um, we've already arranged for Hazel to be there for a few hours. She thinks she's going to be there earlier in the tour. Okay. And I'll be there later in the tour. Um, and we'll be having Hazel and a couple other church members there that will be able to answer questions and I'll tell you more about the place. And I think, you know, uh, I tell everybody when they talk to me about this, when I was back at Goucher and I got an award for this project, um, one of the students came up to me afterwards and was like, I feel like everybody needs a Hazel in their life. <laughs> and I totally agree. Right. I think, um, and, but this will give people a chance to have a little bit of Hazel in their life um, and, and have a bit more connection with this community and to actually learn from them and hear their story. Yeah. And it supports Weber County heritage Mm -hmm. and um, the really amazing things that they're doing to preserve their community. Yes. Yeah. I love that organization. They have been so helpful. I reached out to them and I, because I wanted them to know about this place. And I was like, Hey, have you seen these videos I did on it? And the moment they saw them, they were like, how can we get you more involved to help with this? Because this is an important story. And it was very refreshing to reach out to a nonprofit Mm -hmm. that wanted to be um, progressive and forward thinking on this. And they basically, you know, have been working hand in hand on this um, tour just for this one stop with me. And we've met there with a deacon and did a private tour with a group from where to, from Heber, Weber County Heritage. 
And, you know, they brought like five or six people with them because they wanted to know more about it. And um, I'm so happy to be working with them on this because I really think that th this group will move Ogden's heritage forward. Right. Um, and will be a big part of it. Right. Well, I'm excited to hear the next steps in your your uh, adventure with this with this building and the church. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah. And we'll have you back when... when uh, you get your nomination and uh, have you back and talk a little bit more about that. Yes. And I hope, you know, not only will we eventually get a nomination, um, you know, maybe while Avenue doesn't work out, maybe we focus on New Zion right. because New Zion is at that age where it can be nominated. Yeah. Um, but I hope to also get some official recognition from the state on it. I so, would love that. Yeah. Let me know how I can help. I will. I'm in. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining me today. Um, like, you know, we, we've been talking about this for a while, and um, I think it's a really important story to tell. And, I, and again, it's nice to talk about a building that's not demolished. Yeah, that's still here. That still exists. Can still be saved. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Once again, a huge thanks to Chris for taking time to talk about his research, the history of the church, and why it's so important that we save this building. I will keep you updated on his progress. If you are a Patreon member, stay tuned for more interviews with Jakari, Hazel, and Dolores. As always, check out my Instagram and Facebook pages at Demolish Salt Lake Podcast to see some really great photos of the church and its congregation. If you're on Twitter, you can follow me at Demolished SL Pod. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe. I will be back soon with another episode. I promise it will be soon. And I will see you then.